You can be seated. What is love? What is love? The poets and philosophers and songwriters of the world have agonized over this, spilled countless amounts of ink, trying to answer this question, what is love? And I did a little bit of research of uh, what they said. Plato, the Greek philosopher, says, love is the joy of the good, the wonder of the wise, and the amazement of the gods. St. Augustine says, love is the beauty of the soul. Friedrich Nietzsche says, love is blind. Taylor Swift says, I, th- <laughs> I think the perfection of love is that it's not perfect. That's pretty much what all of her songs are about, too. Um, <laughs> the Spanish poet, Pedro Calderón de la Barca, you can hear his, like, Spanish voice, like Antonio Banderas, I can hear it. It's, when love is not madness... It is not love. And then the ever-articulate baseball player, Yogi Berra, says this. Love is the most important thing in the world. But baseball is pretty good, too. (laughs) I love that. So the British newspaper, um, The Guardian, they decided to ask a few of the leading people in their profession the answer to this question. Um, And I wanted to share some of their thoughts with you. The theoretical physicist said love is chemistry. The psychotherapist says love has many guises. The philosopher says love is a passionate commitment. There's an award-winning romance novelist that they got to weigh in. And she says love drives all great stories. Which I thought was very profound for a romance novelist. And then they actually got a Benedictine nun. And she said love is free, yet it binds us. So what is love? And what does it look like in action? Because this question, however we answer what love is and how it looks like in action, will profoundly affect all of our relationships with our family, our friends, our co-workers, acquaintances, and with God himself. And so we're going to try to tackle a little bit about what love is, and we're particularly going to look like what the process of love looks like when it's coming into being. And we're going to be doing this by looking at the story of Jesus giving birth to the greatest act of love that's ever happened in the history of mankind, which is the cross, when he was lifted up for us. And we're going to see the inner workings of his heart and making that decision and what it took for him to follow that up. So let's look with me to John 12, verse 20 through 26. So a group of Greeks came to Jesus, um, and, and Greeks here we, we understand to mean Gentiles. Um, it's not that they were necessary, necessarily from Macedonia or anything, it's that they were Gentiles, they were non-Jews. And they came and they said, we wish to see Jesus. And they came and then the, the disciples came and told Jesus there's some Greeks that are, willing to see, that are wanting to see you, and then he launches into this very kind of strange almost a a monologue when he sees the Greeks. He says this, Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And if a grain of wheat must must fall to the ground in order for it to bear fruit, and you must lay down your life in order to gain it back, 
And I'm sure the Greeks are sitting there being like, man, we've heard a lot of philosophy before, possibly, but what are you talking about? Well, when Jesus saw these Greeks, something triggered in him. Because these Gentiles had come up to worship at the feast. That's what the passage tells us. But because they were Gentiles and not Jews, there was something they couldn't do. They couldn't sacrifice. And because they couldn't sacrifice, they had no assurance that they were truly forgiven. And so when Jesus sees them, he knows his time has come. Because Jesus will be that sacrifice for the Gentiles. And Jesus was that sacrifice for us. So he knows his time has come to be lifted up. And so we see here our kind of pinnacle moment of what Christian love is. Our, our definition as a body of Christ is love is ultimately a sacrifice, isn't it? Christian love is cross-shaped love. And cross-shaped love is not first and foremost a feeling, but it's a decision, an action. It's a sacrifice. And those who have been following Christ for a while know that. You understand this idea of love as sacrifice. But what this passage gives us is a rare glimpse into what is happening on the inside of Christ when he initially makes that decision to go to the cross for us, to be lifted up on the cross for us. What's going on inside of his heart? And we're going to see that birthing process of love from start to finish here for here in Christ's life. So let's look together at Jesus' prayer in verse 27. This is a very interesting prayer. He says, Now my soul is troubled. He's come up to the point where he must be, make the decision to sacrifice on our behalf. And he says, Now my soul is troubled. What love required of him troubled him. And the word for troubled here is more than just he was a little worried. It's that he was anxious that there was a sense of agony, agitation, revulsion, even horror, because he knew what love required of him. He was so troubled that in the next phrase, we hear him say this. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And a lot of commentators don't think that he's saying, kind of a hypothetical, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. That he's saying, what shall I say? And he's actually asking God, if you can save me, please. And so we see that cross-shaped love starts with a hesitation, even for the Son of God. And in our lives, cross-shaped love starts with a hesitation. And some of us might be thinking, man, that's kind of messed up that true love, the ultimate love, doesn't start out with just a desire to jump in, but it actually starts out with a hesitation. But if you've ever truly loved somebody, really love them, not for what you can get out of the relationship, but for that they would flourish, that they would know that they are loved, you know that it's costly. Because cross-shaped love starts with hesitation because we all want to hold on to kind of self-preservation ourselves. And we see this in life every day. When the mother wakes up 
in the middle of the night to feed her newborn. Or when she tends the sick child. Cross-shaped love starts with a hesitation, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't want to get out of bed. Or when kids in the room, you guys can tune in. When your parents ask you to clean up your room, you're like, ah, cross-shaped love starts with hesitation, doesn't it? Or when your friend or family member says something to you that really cuts you deep. And you know that you need to forgive them. But that cross-shaped love starts with hesitation, doesn't it? When your parents start getting older, and now it's you that needs to take care of them, cross-shaped love starts with hesitation. So a lot of opportunities for love kind of stop here. We hit this hesitation, and we think this. Ah, surely God can't be asking me to do this. Because if, if he did, then he would give me the feeling to back it up. But that's not necessarily always the case. And so the first question I want you to think about as you kind of go into your week is this. What are some opportunities that love, that you've given, that you have the opportunity to give love, that kind of gets snuffed out because you think, ah, I hesitate and I'm not, I, don't, I don't need to give it because I don't feel like giving it. And what are some ways that you can kind of get over this initial hesitation? Okay, so what comes next? We know that cross-shaped love starts with hesitation. But let's look at John 12, at what Jesus says next. He says, Father, save me from this hour. Then he goes on, and he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then he says something profound. He says, Father, glorify your name. What propels Christ past this initial hesitation is because he cares about one thing above everything else, and that's to glorify God. And oftentimes you hear this idea of glorifying God, and I want to kind of simplify it for you. What does it mean to glorify God? It's simply this, to do what God wants you to do, not what you want to do. It's really not much more complicated than that. When you are doing what God wants you to do and not what you want to do, that's glorifying God. So Christ's motivation to push past the hesitation was God's glorification. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to say it one more time. God's, or Christ's motivation to push past his hesitation was God's glorification. And I want to say in our lives, in these situations where we come up against this hesitation, our only shot at overcoming it is to look outside of ourselves, to say, God, I want to do what you want me to do. Because if we try to be self-motivated in doing this, it doesn't always lead to a happy ending for us. If we try to do what God wants us to do, sometimes it leads to suffering. If we do this, if we say, I'm going to try to glorify God, sometimes it leads to humiliation. I remember one time I was, uh, this is the first time I'd ever confronted uh, someone in their sin. And I knew there was a student in my youth group, and he had an unhealthy relationship with this girl. And I knew that it was just not, not a good situation for him. And I, I felt God calling me to 
to tell them, hey, man, you, you, you know, this isn't a good relationship. You need to get out of it. This girl is not a Christian. It's not good for you. And I was really scared. And I didn't want to do it. Everything in me said, no, I don't want to do this. But I knew that it would glorify God. And so I met with him. I lovingly talked to him about it, confronted him with it. And he said, thank you, but no thank you. I'm not going to do it. And, glory, and it was humiliating for me. It really, it really hurt. But I didn't do it so that he would like me. I did it so that God would be glorified. And so our motivation to push past this hesitation is glorifying God. The same goes for, for sharing our faith. We have to step into, anytime you, you try to share your faith with somebody, there's always a profound sense of hesitation. Because what's going to happen? And if you share your faith enough, you know that sometimes the person just says, nope, thank you, no thank you. I don't, I don't want to hear that. But we do it for God's glory. So we push past it. And this, this, this really plays out in all aspects of love, even in parenting. Sometimes you make a hard, God-glorifying decision for your child. And they, and they don't turn back and say, thank you so much for doing that, do they? They oftentimes get angry and stomp off and into their room, and you might not hear from them for 20 years later. They say, thank you for doing that. But our motivation to push past this hesitation is for the glory of God. So that's what we've got to focus our eyes on. And so that's what the, the second question I want you to think through this week is this. Are there some things that you know in your life that God wants you to do, that it would glorify him to do it. But you're afraid. You're afraid of what might happen. And I encourage you, step out in faith, just like Christ did on our behalf. Step out in faith and do it. So just to review what this kind of birthing process of love looks like, um, it's cross-shaped love begins with hesitation, but it's propelled by motivation for God's glorification. Now, there was a preacher by the name of John Harper, and he was a really great British preacher in the early 1900s, um, and he was becoming fairly famous, and he got invited to Moody's Church in Chicago, a big, uh, influential church even to this day, and he got invited to preach, and so he decided him and his daughter, who is a six-year-old named Nana, were going to go across um, to take the, the, the preaching engagement, and they decided to um, take a ship, a really awesome ship, called the Titanic. And they set sail. And as all of us know, on that fateful night, the Titanic hit an iceberg. And he realized the ship is going down. And so he took his daughter. He and him daughter, his daughter went. He actually was one of the lucky ones. They both got life preservers, and they were both given a spot in the ship, in the lifeboat. But he knew what God had put him on earth to do. He knew what would glorify God. And I imagine at that point, there was immense hesitation. Immense hesitation to do what he knew was going to be God glorifying. But he pushed through it. And he looked at his daughter, put her on the lifeboat, and said, honey, I will see you soon. And then he gave his life jacket to somebody else and got back on the ship. 
and spent the next few hours while the ship was still afloat sharing the gospel with people. There's numerous accounts of him praying with people, people that are afraid, worried for their very life, him praying with them, sharing that God loves them, sharing with them that if they believe in Christ, they can have eternal life. There was actually one point where um, an account where he was running through the ships and saying, all women, children, unsaved, onto the lifeboats, onto the lifeboats. So he was, he was really, really living out his faith. And before the ship went down, he actually jumped into the water himself because there was about a thousand people out stranded in the water. And he was swimming from person to person, sharing his faith. And four years later, in Ontario, Canada, they were having a survivors meeting where all of the different survivors um, of, the, tri- of the, the Titanic were just kind of processing their experience. And one man stood up and he said, I was one out of six people that came out of the water. One of the six people out of a thousand people that were in the water that actually got taken by the lifeboats. One in six. And I want to tell you the story of what happened that night as I was out in the water. He said, I was holding on to a piece of debris, floating, growing colder and colder. And I saw this man swimming from person to person. And he was saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall have eternal life. It's a a verse from Romans. And then he said a wave wave came, pushed the man, and all of a sudden the man was right there in front of him. And he looked into his eyes and the man said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall have eternal life. And the guy was like, "Uh, uh, it's okay, man. I mean, this is a true story. He said, it's okay. And then a wave took the guy away. And he was sitting there holding onto this piece of debris, slowly freezing to death with miles of ocean beneath him. And he pondered and he thought. And then, just like that, another wave came and the man was (laughs) right there in front of him and he looked at him again and he said, Son, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The man said, shortly after that, I got pulled out of the water. I never, never saw John Harper again, but I am the last convert of John Harper. For John Harper, cross-shaped love started with hesitation, but he was propelled past that hesitation by his desire to glorify God. And Jesus, even his work on the cross, started with hesitation but he was propelled past it because he wanted to glorify God. And so we too are called to live this cross-shaped life. And it starts with hesitation in our lives, in the small things and in the big things. But fix your eyes on Christ. Lift it up for us. And know that he will give you the strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for not turning away, but rather facing the cross for us, Lord. And I pray for each and every one of us that we would live lives that would reflect that, that you would help us face the the little and the big crosses that we bear each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.